Chapter 18 of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 18. The next day, while the storm was blowing itself out, Wolf Larsen and I crammed anatomy and surgery and set Mugridge's ribs. Then, when the storm broke, Wolf Larsen cruised back and forth over that portion of the ocean where we had encountered it, and somewhat more to the westward, while the boats were being repaired and new sails made and bent. Sealing schooner after sealing schooner we sighted and boarded, most of which were in search of lost boats, and most of which were carrying boats and crews they had picked up and which did not belong to them. For the thick of the fleet had been to the westward of us, and the boats, scattered far and wide, had headed in mad flight for the nearest refuge. Two of our boats, with men all safe, we took off the Cisco, and to Wolf Larsen's huge delight, and my own grief, he called Smoke, with Nilsen and Leach from the San Diego. So that, at the end of five days, we found ourselves short but four men, Henderson, Holyoke, Williams, and Kelly, and were once more hunting on the flanks of the herd. As we followed it north, we began to encounter the dreaded sea-fogs. Day after day the boats lowered and were swallowed up almost ere they touched the water, while we on board pumped the horn at regular intervals, and every fifteen minutes fired the bomb-gun. Boats were continually being lost and found, it being the custom for a boat to hunt, on lay, with whatever schooner picked it up, until such time it was recovered by its own schooner. But Wolf Larsen, as was to be expected, being a boat short, took possession of the first stray one and compelled its men to hunt with the ghost, not permitting them to return to their own schooner when we sighted it. I remember how he forced the hunter and his two men below, a rifle at their breasts, while their captain passed by at biscuit toss, and hailed us for information. Thomas Mugridge, so strangely and perniciously clinging to life, was soon limping about again and performing his double duties as cook and cabin boy. Johnson and Leach were bullied and beaten as much as ever, and they looked for their lives to end with the end of the hunting season, while the rest of the crew lived the lives of dogs and were worked like dogs by their pitiless master. As for Wolf Larsen and myself, we got along fairly well, though I could not quite rid myself of the idea that right conduct, for me, lay in killing him. He fascinated me immeasurably, and I feared him immeasurably. And yet I could not imagine him lying prone in death. There was an endurance, as of perpetual youth, about him, which rose up and forbade the picture. I could see him only as living always, and dominating always, fighting and destroying, himself surviving. One diversion of his, when we were in the midst of the herd and the sea was too rough to lower the boats, was to lower with two boat-pullers and a steerer, and go out himself. He was a good shot, too, and brought many a skin aboard under what the hunters termed impossible hunting conditions. It seemed the breath of his nostrils, this carrying his life in his hands and struggling for it against tremendous odds. 
I was learning more and more seamanship, and one clear day, a thing we rarely encountered now, I had the satisfaction of running and handling the ghost and picking up the boats myself. Wolf Larsen had been smitten with one of his headaches, and I stood at the wheel from morning until evening, sailing across the ocean after the last lee boat and heaving to and picking it and the other five up without command or suggestion from him. Gales we encountered now and again, for it was a raw and stormy region, and in the middle of June a typhoon most memorable to me, and most important because of the changes wrought through it upon my future. We must have been caught nearly at the center of this circular storm, and Wolf Larsen ran out of it and to the southward, first under a double reef jib, and finally under bare poles. Never had I imagined so great a sea. The seas previously encountered were as ripples compared with these, which ran a half mile from crest to crest, and which upreared, I am confident, above our masthead. So great was it that Wolf Larsen himself did not dare heave to, though he was being driven far to the southward and out of the seal herd. We must have been well in the path of the trans-Pacific steamships when the typhoon moderated, and here, to the surprise of the hunters, we found ourselves in the midst of seals. A second herd, or sort of rear guard, they declared, and a most unusual thing. But it was boats over, the boom-boom of guns, and the pitiful slaughter through the long day. It was at this time that I was approached by Leach. I had just finished tallying the skins of the last boat aboard when he came to my side in the darkness and said in a low tone, Can you tell me, Mr. Van Wyden, how far we are off the coast and what the bearings of Yokohama are? My heart leaped with gladness, for I knew what he had in mind, and I gave him the bearings, west, northwest, and five hundred miles away. Thank you, sir, was all that he said as he slipped back into the darkness. Next morning, number three boat and Johnson and Leach were missing. The water breakers and grub boxes from all the other boats were likewise missing, as were the beds and sea bags of the two men. Wolf Larsen was furious. He set sail and bore away into the west-northwest, two hunters constantly at the mastheads and sweeping the sea with glasses, himself pacing the deck like an angry lion. He knew too well my sympathy for the runaways to send me aloft as a lookout. The wind was fair but fitful, and it was like looking for a needle in a haystack to raise that tiny boat out of the blue immensity. But he put the ghost through her best paces so as to get between the deserters in the land. This accomplished, he cruised back and forth across what he knew must be their course. On the morning of the third day, shortly after eight bells, a cry that a boat was sighted came down from smoke at the masthead. All hands lined the rail. A snappy breeze was blowing from the west with the promise of more wind behind it, and there, to leeward, in the troubled silver of the rising sun, appeared and disappeared a black speck. We squared away and ran for it. My heart was as lead. I felt myself turning sick in anticipation, and as I looked at the gleam of triumph in Wolf Larsen's eyes, 
his form swam before me, and I felt almost irresistibly impelled to fling myself upon him. So unnerved was I by the thought of impending violence to Leach and Johnson that my reason must have left me. I know that I slipped down into the steerage in a daze, and that I was just beginning the ascent to the deck, a loaded shotgun in my hands, when I heard the startled cry, "'There's five men in that boat!' I supported myself in the companionway, weak and trembling, while the observation was being verified by the remarks of the rest of the men. Then my knees gave from under me, and I sank down, myself again, but overcome by shock at knowledge of what I had so nearly done. Also, I was very thankful as I put the gun away and slipped back on deck. No one had remarked my absence. The boat was near enough for us to make out that it was larger than any sealing boat and built on different lines. As we drew closer, the sail was taken in and the mast unstepped. Oars were shipped, and its occupants waited for us to heave to and take them aboard. Smoke, who had descended to the deck and was now standing by my side, began to chuckle in a significant way. I looked at him inquiringly. "'Talk of a mess!' he giggled. "'What's wrong?' I demanded. Again he chuckled. "'Don't you see there, in the stern sheets on the bottom? "'May I never shoot a seal again if that ain't a woman.' I looked closely, but was not sure until exclamations broke out on all sides. The boat contained four men, and its fifth occupant was certainly a woman. We were agog with excitement, all except Wolf Larsen, who was too evidently disappointed in that it was not his own boat with the two victims of his malice. We ran down the flying jib, hauled the jib sheets to windward and the main sheet flat, and came up into the wind. The oars struck the water, and with a few strokes the boat was alongside. I now caught my first fair glimpse of the woman. She was wrapped in a long ulster, for the morning was raw, and I could see nothing but her face and a mass of light brown hair escaping from under the seaman's cap on her head. The eyes were large and brown and lustrous, the mouth sweet and sensitive, and the face itself a delicate oval, though sun and exposure to briny wind had burnt the face scarlet. She seemed to me like a being from another world. I was aware of the hungry outreaching for her, as of a starving man for bread. But then I had not seen a woman for a very long time. I know that I was lost in a great wonder, almost a stupor. This, then, was a woman? So that I forgot myself and my mate's duties and took no part in helping the newcomers aboard. For when one of the sailors lifted her into Wolf Larsen's downstretched arms, she looked up into our curious faces and smiled amusedly and sweetly, as only a woman can smile, and as I had seen no one smile for so long that I had forgotten such smiles existed. Mr. Van Wyden! Wolf Larsen's voice brought me sharply back to myself. Will you take the lady below and see to her comfort? Make up that spare port cabin. Put Cookie to work on it, and see what you can do for that face. It's burned badly. He turned brusquely away from us and began to question the new men. The boat was cast adrift, though one of them called it a bloody shame with Yokohama so near. 
I found myself strangely afraid of this woman I was escorting aft. Also I was awkward. It seemed to me that I was realizing for the first time what a delicate, fragile creature a woman is, and as I caught her arm to help her down the companion stairs, I was startled by its smallness and softness. Indeed, she was a slender, delicate woman, as women go, but to me she was so ethereally slender and delicate that I was quite prepared for her arm to crumble in my grasp. All this, in frankness, to show my first impression, after a long denial of women in general, and of Maud Brewster in particular. No need to go to any great trouble for me, she protested, when I had seated her in Wolf Larsen's armchair, which I had dragged hastily from his cabin. The men were looking for land at any moment this morning, and the vessel should be in by night, don't you think so? Her simple faith in the immediate future took me aback. How could I explain to her the situation, the strange man who stalked the sea like destiny? all that it had taken me months to learn, but I answered honestly. If it were any other captain except ours, I should say you would be ashore in Yokohama tomorrow. But our captain is a strange man, and I beg of you to be prepared for anything. Understand? For anything. I confess I hardly do understand, she hesitated, a perturbed but not frightened expression in her eyes. Or is it a misconception of mine that shipwrecked people are always shown every consideration? This is such a little thing, you know. We are so close to land. Candidly, I do not know, I strove to reassure her. I wished merely to prepare you for the worst, if the worst is to come. This man, this captain, is a brute, a demon, and one can never tell what will be his next fantastic act. I was growing excited, but she interrupted me with an, oh, I see, and her voice sounded weary. To think was patently an effort. She was clearly on the verge of physical collapse. She asked no further questions, and I vouchsafed no remark, devoting myself to Wolf Larsen's command, which was to make her comfortable. I bustled about in quite housewifely fashion, procuring soothing lotions for her sunburn, raiding Wolf Larsen's private stores for a bottle of port I knew to be there, and directing Thomas Mugridge in the preparation of the spare stateroom. The wind was freshening rapidly, the ghost heeling over more and more, and by the time the stateroom was ready, she was dashing through the water at a lively clip. I had quite forgotten the existence of Leach and Johnson, when suddenly, like a thunderclap, Boat ho! came down the open companionway. It was Smoke's unmistakable voice crying from the masthead. I shot a glance at the woman, but she was leaning back in her armchair, her eyes closed, unutterably tired. I doubt that she had heard, and I resolved to prevent her seeing the brutality I knew would follow the capture of the deserters. She was tired. Very good. She should sleep. There were swift commands on deck, a stamping of feet and a slapping of reef points as the ghost shot into the wind and about on the other tack. As she filled away and heeled, the armchair began to slide across the cabin floor, and I sprang for it just in time to prevent the rescued woman from being spilled out. 
her eyes were too heavy to suggest more than a hint of the sleepy surprise that perplexed her as she looked up at me and she half stumbled half tottered as i led her to her cabin mugridge grinned insinuatingly in my face as i shoved him out and ordered him back to his galley work and he won his revenge by spreading glowing reports among the hunters as to what an excellent lady's mind i was proving myself to be she leaned heavily against me and i do believe that she had fallen asleep again between the armchair and the stateroom this i discovered when she nearly fell into the bunk during the sudden lurch of the schooner she aroused smiled drowsily and was off to sleep again and asleep i left her under a heavy pair of sailor's blankets her head resting on a pillow i had appropriated from wolf larsen's bunk End of chapter 18